I think we should allow ourselves to get a little messy. From Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago, Illinois. The freedom to explore the deepest, darkest, whatever-est things in the human condition. This is Half Hour. All right, all right. Welcome back, y'all. Hey. Hello. Hey, so here we are once again with another episode of Half Hour. This week, we've got me, Caroline Neff. James Vincent Meredith. Cliff Chamberlain. And me, Audrey Francis. Okay, I have to say, I am so excited for this week's episode. Not only because Clint is one of the most incredible artists working in the American theater right now, but he's also our first designer to appear on the show. Audrey, what was it like talking to such a prolific and amazing designer? I mean, it was pretty humbling because, you know, when you talk to somebody and then you're like, fuck, what have I done with my life? (laughs) (laughs) It's like that. I mean, he's amazing. And, and on top of that, I think, I think the thing that I went into this conversation with is, is gratitude because Clint is the only person who has been bold enough to costume design me and say, I'm going to dye your hair platinum blonde for Mm. doppelganger. And so because of Clint, I have lived as a blonde for, you know, three months of my life, which I'll, (laughs) I'll be forever grateful for. I feel that way when I talk to designers at all, just like, what am I doing with my life? Like they're, (laughs) they're all so much better at creating art than me. Like, in every way. And um, gosh, just from the experiences I've had of seeing Clint's work at Steppenwolf, I know that is true. Uh, he's an incredible, incredible designer, especially because he can do two things, scenic and costume. Come on. Yeah. And also he totally had me dripping with flavors when I did Doppelganger. He got me in some good leopard magic <laughs> and uh, my green leisure suit is something I'm still trying to purchase. Um, Steppenwolf, if you're listening I'm still interested. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of his work costume-wise, for sure. All right, friends. Shall we take a listen? Yes. So excited to listen to this. Then here it is. Audrey Francis with Clint Ramos. Half hour, tap the show, please. Half hour. Half hour, please. Tap the show. Half hour. So, Clint, because I don't think that I can word this as well as you could. How would you describe what you do for a living? I feel like part of what I've been doing in the last maybe six years of my like life and my professional career, my practice basically, is actually asking that question, you know, like, who, who am I? What am I? You know, so... um Uh, You know, the easy answer to that question would be, yes, I am a set and I am a costume designer and I do, I create these, uh, I create environments for the theater um, that, that houses the story. And I also design what the inhabitants of that environment look like. Um, um, But I think more than anything, I feel like I, um, I, I'm a storyteller. Uh, I'm a theater maker, you know, and, uh, a lot of what I do is based on that premise, on practicing, like, how to tell stories with other people. So when I hear storytelling, I when I was young, I remember that my 
way into seeing storytelling was through the people on stage telling it. So my question to you is, where, when was there a moment where it became the environment and even the articles that the humans were wearing on the environment that became the story for you? Oh, that's really interesting. Well, you know, I think I, I wanted to be a director and I, I knew early on that I wasn't as good talking to people and um, being on, you know, 100% of the time and having that, that, that communication line open 100% of the time uh, when creating the work. And I did, I wasn't that person. I just, I realized that pretty early on, I, you know, I, I said I didn't have that, 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 that people skill, but I knew that I wanted to, to create something um, that, uh, that, that in a way could still hold all of the themes and all of, of the stuff that's happening in the story. And I knew that design was the second or was the logical step, you know, that's sort of like the easy answers to like, when I, when I did it, like I, when I knew that I couldn't really be a director, uh, not because I didn't have any vision. I, I knew that the logical step was, was, was to create the physical environments for, um, uh, f- for the pieces. But my entry to the theater really was in political theater. I grew up in the Philippines um, and, and was through um, street theater. Um, and I was very young and I, I saw the power of uh, that uh, relationship between the audience and, um, and, and the piece that's being performed. And so I've, I, I've always thought of that uh, as the theater itself and not particularly the silos that we try to that that you know particularly in the american theater like that they try to fill you into you know Mm -hmm. so i i always looked at the theater as as not anything that can be held but actually the sort of this this intangible connection between the thing and who's watching the thing you know um and i think that's where I, i i felt um I sort of like formulated in, the, in my mind, in my very young mind, that I, you know, my involvement with the theater could be limber, could be sort of amorphous. I love what you're saying about it's about the thing itself and the people watching the thing. And, you you know, you use the word uh, earlier on, I heard you say the word vision. How do you come up with your vision and collaborate with someone who is a director? who may have their own vision. Rarely do I encounter a director who comes to the table saying, this is exactly what I want it to be, and this is how I want it to be. And I've, you know, in my whole like career, I've kind of, I've kind of stayed away from those directors. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, uh, I've been lucky enough that most of the directors I've worked with, you know, and who, who I constantly collaborate with actually don't come to the table with that. It is about um, it is about learning to dance with each other. I think for me that that those conversations lead towards. But in terms of like what the entry point is, what the point of entry is, like it's all for me. It's always um, uh, I mean, clearly it's reading the script or you know listening to the text and hearing the music and all that. But like I feel like I think a lot of um, what I've come to understand about my process and that I pay close attention to is that everything that I do 
uh, has to be an emotional response to the um, the piece or whatever that piece is trying to say. When I encounter the piece, I ask, uh, what does it make me feel, you know? Um, and then I ask the second question, which is, well, what does it feel like? As if the piece is something um, tactile, like I could feel it, I could I could smell it, I could see it, I could, you know, I could hear it. And what does that, what what does that feel like? Does it feel slippery? Does it feel, you know, spiky? And from there, I think I just kind of like hone in on that. And then that sort of leads me to like this detective story where I'm like, I, it feels like I'm actually going into, <laughs> um, uh, into this, um, into what 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 would be like the equivalent of a really like dark night, and you go into it like in a way that you kind of like you just don't know what's gonna happen, but you know that you're gonna find you're gonna run into things. You have such this adventurous quality to your process. I was describing your work to my husband, and I said it, when I see Clint's work, it touches all my senses. So I feel like I can taste your set and I can smell the costumes, which I want to talk about in a second, and I can feel things and and they like um your sets have sound almost to them. <laughs> Do you feel like you see the world in a different way than most? Oh that's a really interesting question because I I, I you know uh I do. I actually do. And I don't know if that's, if I'm delusional that way, uh, uh, but it, it comes from a deep place of being um, an outsider, to be honest. As I mentioned, I grew up in the Philippines, but I think, uh, um, although it was a homogenous culture, I was a very gay child and um, a very gay and very overweight child. So at a, at a very young age, I kind of like really knew, um, I was, you know, in a way I was a minority in my own family. And um, and then when I came to the United States, um, I, you know, all of a sudden I was brown. Um, uh, and uh, uh, something that I've never really encountered, but like also being an immigrant, I've always kind of like, you know, the, the idea of being an outsider has always been, uh, I, I, I got that down. Like I, I've, I've, I've absorbed that in a way. I, I never thought of it as a thing that I should actually harness. You know, I think earlier on, I, I, I always just wanted to get rid of it to always, you know, there's, and to a certain extent, I still, I can't, I can't not. Like it's deeply Freudian to want to belong, right? But like I feel like I think what I've learned as I've gotten older and battled many demons, I feel like I think what maybe if there is a God that what what that God is trying to tell me is that hey, there is this thing that constantly constantly bugs you. You should actually just use that shit right there. <laughs> so. Yes, I think I see the world differently, but a lot of people also do, you know, and I try to, um, I, as much as possible, I try to make that be about work, you know, um, and make that, deploy that particular insecurity, uh, uh, in particular in the theater. Where do you feel most at home or most accepted? Uh, uh well, ironically enough, in the theater, you know, um, because it is such a, you know, like I call it the Isle of Misfit Toys. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, that's so you know, true. 
<laughs> that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like, like oh, totally. Disney, you know, the Barbie I mean, with like the fucked up haircut. Yeah, exactly, all of that. Like, I feel like that's the theater. But I, ironically enough, it is the theater. It is the source of great, great, like deep, deep abiding love for me. And it is also a source of because it is that you know, it is the source of deep disappointment. You know, and and it is also it is because of sort of like this deep love for it, this like really existential need to be loved by it that I want to change it, you know? Um, yeah. I don't even think like, um, like uh, it, it's a question of like where I feel most accepted. It's like, it's really a question of like home, you know, um, and, 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 and home uh, on terms that I, uh, I want to define for myself that I have defined for myself, but also want to define for for future generations of, of particularly uh, the designers of color or theater artists of color, you know. Well, and you do so much advocacy work. You're you're a part of so many different things. Can you talk about some of the stuff that's been keeping you busy lately? Yeah, I mean, there's so much. It's just, you know, I think part of part of it is like I, you know, I I I, I run the uh, uh, the design track, the design program at Fordham, and so I I I, I do that um, part through education, just decolonizing how we teach design. You know, um, I talk with a lot of colleagues. Um, you know, a bunch of designers. Uh, and I started this uh, this group called Design Action, where we advocate for a radical change in the American theater design landscape. Um, you know, just looking at the numbers, as we all know, we, we, we are fighting for equitable pres- uh, representation. And I think what's unique about this group, it is it is mixed. You know, it is it, it is uh, white and BIPOC designers doing this. Uh, and, you know, I, I uh, what's been frustrating for me is that, you know, a lot of us have been saying this for a long time, you know, have been doing this work for a long time. And, and it's not frustrating, I suppose. It's it's uh, it's just absurd that, you know, folks are only listening to it like now, you know. Right. I see it as, as, a, as a sense of like duty, actually, as a sense of um, uh, my way of 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 paying it forward and frankly, to pay the American theater back. You know, I think, you know, I owe a lot to the American theater. And then I think part of the way I want to pay back is is by doing this particular kind of service, you know. And it may not be the flavor of service that, you know, a lot of folks like, but it's the, it's, I think it's the service that, you know, that I feel is much needed right now. It's so cool to, to hear you talk about this, Clint, because what the American theater needs, I don't think it knew that it needed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine it's incredibly frustrating because you've been working for this probably your entire career. And then there's just this one moment where all of a sudden the majority decides like, oh, now we'll listen. Now we'll do the right thing, which I can imagine is incredibly frustrating. Yes, it's incredibly frustrating, but it's also incredibly rewarding to know. Yeah, for instance, I'm one of the signatories to the VCU letter and the demands. And to see so many theaters actually pay attention to what hundreds, even thousands of uh, black, indigenous, and uh, theater workers of color have pointed out uh, uh, is encouraging. It's encouraging to see that the the acknowledgement of of 
of what is just, you know, is being implemented and implemented in a rate, at a rate that's actually unprecedented. You know, uh, you see a lot of theaters actually change from the way they they look for board members to just like theater practices, the way we all are doing land acknowledgements right now before rehearsals. I think all of that is, it's very moving, you know, it is very, very, very moving. I just try to imagine what it could have been if we started like 10 years ago and where we would be right now. Right. But we can't, we can't really think about that. We just, we just have to look at the future and see what, you know, see, um, look ahead to this sort of forward movement, you know just by you being an artist, you're changing the lives and opportunities for the next generation. Did you have any idea that that is what you'd be doing while you're creating your art when you started? I never really looked at it that way. You know, it, it to me, it just, it, it seemed like the only logical step. I mean, to be honest, when I came out of grad school, I couldn't find any work, right? Um, and the only people who would give me work were people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Um, to a certain extent, I, uh, part of me paying them back and also trying to like correct the past was, was, is actually, well, then how can I, how can I make it easier for, for, for younger uh, artists of color to enter the theater and to actually practice, you know, we talk a lot about like pipelines and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff and EDI stuff and all this kind of stuff. But what are we really doing to to create uh, an openness in the practice, you know? Um, and I think for me, the, the rubric of mentorship and the, 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 the way um, we've practiced it for a long time, uh, as, as, as far as inclusion is concerned, is broken. You know, because I think part of what we've been trying to harness for a long time was created by a system that didn't really benefit us, right? And so, for instance, and I will just cite this, for for instance, when I was coming up, the idea was to find a mentor. So inevitably, the, the folks who would mentor me were white, you know, and so... Just in terms of lived experiences, there already is a separation there because there are things that I I would be um, reticent or not reticent, like be reluctant to actually share with that person because I, I don't know if they would be able to actually understand it. And most of the time they wouldn't. Right. So but the the tr- the the sort of like unspoken training module was like. If you find a mentor of color, what you want to learn from that mentor of color is how to make yourself invincible, how to create an armor so that the in, so that you can survive the industry, right? Yeah. So that you become so exceptional and so Teflon covered that anything that comes at you just bounces off. And so you can just continue doing the work. Wow. Things that things that my white contemporaries never had to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were teaching us how to be warriors, you know? Yeah. Because nobody actually wanted to change the spaces. And so for me, I think part of, of the sort of like mentorship rubric is like, yes, find those mentors who will teach you that, who will teach you all of that. But you also have to change the space so they don't have to build these armors. Because you, when you talk to younger artists of color who are like, they're done, you know, they are aware of what actually is due them in terms of social justice, right? So when you tell them, hey, build an armor, there's like no fucking way. Mm-hmm. 
My white contemporary is not building an armor. Why are you asking me to build an armor? Fix the system so I don't have to build an armor. And so to me, a lot of the mentorship rubric really is about that. It's like, how can we create this space? We say we want them. We say we want equitable representation. What are the systemic changes that we can make to set up these artists for success so we can indeed create this equitable presence that is meaningful and just not about numbers, you know? Yeah. Girl, you got me off. You got- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, for being willing to share that. And I, I guess the only question that I would ask is if you had one piece of advice to give a young BIPOC designer or artist in general, what's, what's the, either the best advice that you've received or the best advice that you have today? Oh, it's literally the advice that these folks that, you know, the, the folks of color who, who, who literally wrapped their arms around me when I was young, when I entered the American theater. And it's the, it's the advice that I keep on giving everybody. It's like, go where the love is, you know, because that means what that means to me is go where there are like minded people who care about the things that you care about and who believe in the things that you believe in and who want to create work according to those principles, you know? And uh, whether or not they're BIPOC or white, I've found that community. I've found those people, you know? And I don't fuck with people who actually don't believe in that. Sorry. No, 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 that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I just, and you know, you know, you can see the people who roll that way out in mm-hmm. the world. And I'm, I, and I'm going to say for myself, I've been really fortunate that I've met so many people. That a lot of them were at Steppenwolf, you know, who like, really loved to create work and question the way they create work you know so I think part of this is really about like just find your tribe you know find your tribe 15 minutes please 15 minutes of the show 15 can I ask a super fucking catty question yes (laughs) (laughs) so so you do two things really well yeah Set design and costume design. Yeah. Is it difficult if you're only doing one of those aspects and you have to work with a designer doing the other one where you know that you could do that shit so much better? I don't think you need to be doing two disciplines in order to have those thoughts in your mind. (laughs) So I, you know, so I feel like I think part of, again, what happens is that, uh, is it difficult? I, I don't find it difficult. It's only difficult if you don't have a way to communicate you know, your ideas, you know, I think part of like what that happens in the American theater is that, you know, there is um, an established power dynamic, you know, that I think we all need to start questioning, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we always say, you know, this is an open room, we're open for whatever, and blah, 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 blah. But like, really, what are the what, what are the terms of engagement for that? You know, so for me, we should find a way to actually depersonalize the way we work with each other. And that's hard because we all are theater people and we, you know, our hearts and souls are in there. But like, I think we should allow ourselves to get a little messy, you know, to, to know that, you know, there are things that can, that we have to be able to throw our, you know, things in the ether. And like, if it lands, it lands, it doesn't, it doesn't. To me, it's about like not creating harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's one thing that's really important. But also 
the freedom to explore the deepest, darkest, whatever-est things in the human condition, right? And and that's a long way of answering that. Is, is it hard? It was hard originally when I didn't feel like I had a voice to speak, you know what I mean? But now I feel like I it actually isn't. If you find your tribe, you're going to be able to say all of those notes in public and and, and right. people will will love you and thank you for it because you're also receiving their notes that way, you know? How did you... Because I feel like, especially in the States, everyone, there's this mentality of you have to choose one thing. So I admire so much that you were like, I don't have to choose. I want to do both. Was there, a, did you have to fight for that choice or was it supported? Uh, I think for me, uh, um, I had to fight for it. I had to say, you know, I had to sort of like defy this kind of silo making system that the American theater wants you to do because it's easier for them, you know, to categorize us, right? Like, I am sure it happens to actors. Like, I can't think of that actor as this role. It's like, well, you know what? Start working, you know, just like start thinking because it's actually easy. Part of what happens, and this is this goes back to this idea of 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 the the scarcity mentality, is that, you know, I, I can speak for myself as a designer. We were never thought to be like artistic leaders for instance you know um designers for instance have a very intimate knowledge of how production production departments are run in each theater right so it probably pays to listen to designers when they have something to say about like how to improve working conditions in the theater you know and that to me is really it's 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 uh it's like a no-brainer yeah there are so many ways to skin the theatrical cat Right. But I think more and more what like what we're realizing is that in order for us to literally save the American theater, we actually have to look at that word American. (gasps) And we actually instead of other words. Right. Because I think that's what the key is. You know, how do we make it mirror the most ideal version of what we signed up for? as a nation, as a country, as a people, right? So let's make it about the people. Let us make it about the people. I mean, we have to really look at that. All, among all of the isms, we have to look at this this this, uh, this idea of, of populism and capitalism and where does, how do we then actually solve the American theater question? Five minutes, this is your five minute call, five minutes. I'm incredibly moved and inspired to be with you, and I can't wait to see what happens to you in this lightning round. Oh, my God. Is it the lightning round? <laughs> it's the lightning round. Are you ready? <laughs> can, I, can I phone a couple of friends? <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely can. Okay. Clint, what is the most important half hour of any process that you embark upon? It's the half hour when I get back home and I think about that day. It's the first half hour. What is your most prized piece of play memorabilia? It can either be like a costume or whatever. I would say it's a button that I saved from when I did Here Lies Love. Uh, you know, it fell off of uh, Ruthian Miles, who's a good friend, a fantastic, phenomenal actor, uh, did that show at the public and it fell off of her. Um, and that show was very special to me. And so that's something that I've saved um, 
nobody knows this, but like I've I've saved and I've I've kept on saving. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. What job didn't you get that broke your heart? You know. Okay. Um, this is really embarrassing to admit. Uh, okay. In 1999 or 2000, um, uh, a young director approached me, um, or I was like, I was actually, I was referred to him by another designer, and I really wanted to do the show. So I I go to this coffee shop in the Upper West Side in New York, I, I, I lay out my portfolio, I read the script like three times. And we had a great meeting, and I didn't get the job. Um, and and I've never mentioned this to him. But it was Gross Indecency, The Trials of Oscar Wilde by Moises Kaufman. And he was the writer and director, and I met him. And, uh, and I don't think he actually, he, I don't know if he'll remember this, but I did not get that job. Okay, that was a good one. What, I, what animal do you most identify with? Uh, I, I would say a pig, probably. I love that. <laughs> I just, all of it, you know, I mean, yeah, apparently pigs are really like smart and intuitive, but I also feel like I, I'm always trying to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I'm just messy. Same. You know? I always want people to make a sandwich out of my stomach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who is an artist or some artists that is or are giving you the most inspiration right now? Mm. Oh my gosh, a lot of folks, you know. Um, I'm really inspired by a lot of like young uh, uh, BIPOC artists right now. Um, Jeremy Harris, you know, Jeremy O. Harris is giving me a lot of like uh, hope, you know, um, just by uh, the sense of agency he has over his art and over his practice and you know and I loved working with him on Slave Play you know I'm very inspired by you know everybody like D Dominique Morisot you know for her ferocity uh, Robert O'Hara for his unabashed just um, satirical uh, hammer on on America you know on Lynn Nottage you know I'm, 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 I'm David Henry Huang I just like all of them you know inspire me uh, uh God, Katori Hall, like all of them just looking at the body of work, you know, and the wisdom that these artists have given the American theater. And um, and I really think it's about time that we look at their work and create a new canon. You know? If you had a superpower, what would it be? It would probably be invisibility. Oh, God. An invisible pig. Like, can you imagine just like walking into tech and being like, come on, bitch, just give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, just like literally like talk about me right now and then just like let out like some messy snort, be like, <gasps> and totally. then like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can so easily imagine that, um, which leads me to my next question so easily. What do you daydream about? I, oh, God, I daydream. Okay, here's what I really daydream about. I daydream about, like, projects, you know, projects are, like on Broadway or on film or whatever that are, that, uh, that would just, like, literally open, like, minds and hearts about. And I daydream about, like, 
you know, uh, about the ease with which that particular project would be funded and mm-hmm. would find its audience. You know, I, I daydream about that. I de- there are so many things that I think the American public should should really see. You know, I guess I guess that's what I daydream about. And I, I and, and I think part of that is like this deep desire, you know, to not actually desire this acknowledgement that I that it is it is it is our responsibility to educate our audience. Uh, what's your favorite place to unwind in Chicago? Oh, oh, this is. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh my God! Please forgive me. This is so capitalist of me, but like, and bougie as fuck. But like, I love the fucking Soho House in Chicago. <laughs> that is very nice. But I'm just saying that the way the Chicago folks do it is so amazing because they leave you the fuck alone okay clint if you were a character in a play what would your character's description be i think it would be filipino (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged gay as fuck (laughs) (laughs) misunderstood means well but will fight Places, please, for the top of the show. Places, please. Wow, that was so fucking inspiring, yes. right? I mean, I feel like he's he's got um, this eye for helping others who come kind of after him in a way that, you know, as far as the mentorship is concerned, you know, it's really interesting how he's talking about, you know, when he came up and when a lot of us came up, you know, a lot of my mentors were white and they had a certain knowledge that was very useful uh, for me, uh, but they couldn't really speak to what it'd be like to walk in my shoes as a person of color in this industry. And his idea of trying to change that whole paradigm and how that's viewed is really intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like talking to someone who's actively trying to change the future Mm. in the present moment, which is, like I said in the beginning of this conversation, is incredibly humbling and inspiring. Yeah, to have that kind of inspiration and also to hear him talk about the way that he approaches design is like with color and taste and Mm. feel. And that is so evident in his designs. I mean, from Doppelganger to scenic design from Marie Antoinette to his work on slave play, which was breathtaking. Um, I just, I I, I love how tactile the way he talks about Mm -hmm. his art as well as so sort of ethereally, he's both like like grounded and tactile and sort of nebulous and ethereal. And I just, I love that dichotomy in a human being. Well, the words that come to my mind uh, were uh, Isle of Misfit Toys when he was talking about home and where he feels most at home, both because of uh, his deep love and his deep disappointment just of sort of the American theater. But that idea of the Isle of Misfit Toys, when you think of that movie and you think of artists, the ones that matter are the misfits, are the ones that mm. harness their own, um, uh, the things about them that make them special and different. And he just is someone who, for myself, who doesn't know him, listening to him, I'm like, I want to be on that guy's island. Yeah. And also he means well, but he will fight. That's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> 
If you want to see more of Clint's work, obviously you can check him out on Instagram. His name, Clint Ramos, C-L-I-N-T-R-A-M-O-S. You could also take a little trip to the movie theater on August 13th when a movie that he costume designed is being released called Respect about what? Aretha Franklin. Nice. Amazing, amazing. I cannot wait to see the projects that that human being comes up with next, and I can't wait to have him back at Steppenwolf. And with that, that unfortunately is our time. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Half Hour, brought to you by Steppenwolf Theatre Company. And thanks again to our guest this week, Clint Ramos. Half Hour is produced by Patrick Zakam, mixed and edited by Matthew Chapman. The theme music for Half Hour is by Michael Bodine and Rob Milburn. The voice of this episode's stage manager was Laura D. Glenn. Special thanks to Aaron Cook, Joel Mormon, Kara Henry, Christopher Huizer, Kirsten Adams, Madeline Long, Corinne Florentino, and all the folks at Steppenwolf. Follow us on Twitter at SteppenwolfTHTR or on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always get in touch by emailing halfhour at steppenwolf.org. And heads up, y'all, we're taking a short mid-season break, but in four weeks we'll be back with more conversations with legendary and inspiring artists, activists, and organizations. Till then, this is Caroline Neff, James Vincent Meredith, Cliff Chamberlain, and Audrey Francis. A lifetime to engage, half hour to places. Oh my God. It's just a reminder that sometimes when I get to act, I just feel like a Muppet with someone's hand up my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.